I'm Deidre. I'm Chelsea. And we're giving you a million murders. How's it been going? It's been going. Yeah. We're, you know, still dealing with all the tornado stuff and, you know, this one, we're recording this one the week after everything happened. So, you know, we're all just hanging in there and feeling for everybody. We were, we were lucky enough that it didn't affect our homes and mm-hmm. not too which bad. I had some family and friends and Deidre had some friends and it impacted so we've been trying to be there for them as much as we can and the community so yeah so we're just, our hearts go out to them for sure oh yeah definitely if it didn't affect you you knew somebody it affected you differently in different ways oh yeah so you know, we're going to get through this, but we're still going to record to give everybody, you know, something to, you know, something to take your mind off of it for a little bit at least. Yeah. So I am doing Lizzie Borden mm-hmm. today. So here we go. <laughs> and I put this stuff down. Of course, this is so corny, but. <clears throat> Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Oh, no. (laughs) So, Lizzie Andrew Borden was born July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts to Sarah Anthony Borden, who was born 1823 and died in 1863. So she died when she was three years old. Dang, she died 100 years before my mama was born. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, this happened. Like, we know people were born, like, way back when, but it's like, when you hear dates, it's like, dang. Yeah. Like, pre-Civil War, just, which, I mean, it takes place after the Civil War, because, yeah. but, starts before it, it's crazy. And, uh, so Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden... Her father, Andrew, uh, was of English and Welsh descent Hmm. and grew up in very modest surroundings and struggled financially as a young man, despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential local residents. He eventually prospered in the manufacture and sale of furniture and caskets and then became a successful property developer. Hmm. Yeah, so I didn't know anything about the... You know, I knew he had, I knew he had money. I knew he was rich, but I didn't know how he made it and I didn't realize it started yeah. with the caskets and the furniture and stuff. So that's how it started. Then he was a property developer and he was a director of several textile mills and owned considerable commercial property. Um which I didn't know that. He has like houses in that area. Uh he was also president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. 
at his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, which is equivalent to $9 million in 2020. Dang. Yeah, so like money. That's a lot of dough, y'all. Mm-hmm. He had the, the change, the coins. <laughs> so even though... Just bourbon. Even though Andrew was wealthy, he was known to be incredibly frugal. Their home lacked indoor plumbing, even even though it was a standard for wealthy people during this time period. Like, people, if you had money, you had indoor plumbing. He's like, no, we're good. Well, now we know why things happen. (laughs) Now we know why things happen how they happen. Yeah, like, everybody mad. They're like, we just want an indoor toilet. So, it was in a wealthy area, but the wealthiest residents of Fall River, including Andrew's cousins, generally lived in the more fashionable neighborhood, 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 the hill, which was farther from the industrial areas of the city. So, they lived, like, down in the industrial part. So, everybody else lived on the hill, but they lived <laughs> down oh, there. Down, down yonder. Mm-hmm. So, Borden and her older... Now we're talking about Lizzie. So, Lizzie and her older sister, Emma Lenora Borden, had a relatively religious upbringing and attended Central Congregation Church. Congregational Church, sorry. As a young woman, she was very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants to the United States. And she was involved in Christian organizations such as the Christian Endeavor Society and contemporary social movements such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Hmm. She's doing a little bit, you know, doing a little bit of everything. Uh, Three years after the death of Lizzie's mother, Sarah, Andrew married Abby Durfee Gray. So that comes from that Durfee safe deposit and trust. Mm -hmm. So I guess he, I feel like that had to have been her family, and then she just... He just took it over because yeah. he was the man, I guess. I don't know. So, or they named it Sounds after her family. Because right. yeah. he was the man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Lizzie stated that she called her stepmother Mrs. Borden. Mm. Yeah, she believed that Abby had married her father for his wealth. Ooh. So and I get, yeah. A lot of women did back in the dumb days. Yeah, they were like, listen, I gotta, I gotta be living comfortably. So that's what she thought about her stepmom. So then, you know, so it's Lizzie, Andrew, the dad, her sister, Emma, stepmom, Sarah, and then there's also Bridget, who they called Maggie, and she was the Bordens' 25-year-old living maid who had immigrated from the U.S., Mm -hmm. uh, immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland. Um, And everybody knew about the tension between... You know, Lizzie and Emma and the parents, you know, it was just kind of awkward, I think, after, you know, growing up with the stepmother that they didn't get along with. So, in May of 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet. Mm. Yeah. Believing that they were attracting local children to hunt them. So, I guess he was just like, I don't want these kids around. So, he just killed the pigeons so that people wouldn't be hunting near his property. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. So, Lizzie had recently built a roost for the pigeons. And it was commonly recounted that she was upset over his killing of them. Though, you know, this has kind of been disputed, like, how upset she was. But, you know, she's, like, trying to build this little 
place for the pigeons and then he just killed them. That's sad. Yeah, so this is just all the stuff that's building up to the murders because everybody knows, you know, the mom and dad do get killed yeah. from the poem I stated earlier. <laughs> so this is just all leading up to it. So then there was a family argument in July of 1892, a couple of months later, that prompted both sisters to take extended vacations in New Bedford. Uh, after returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the family residence. So, like, she's, she's not even trying to come home. She's just like, I'm out. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. Gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to do my thing. Yeah, she's like, mm, I'm not ready to come back yet, so I'm going to stay in this rooming house. So, tension, you know, had been growing within the family in the months before the murders, especially over Andrew's gifts of real estate to various branches of Abby's family. After their stepmother's sister received a house, the sisters, his daughters, had demanded and received a rental property, the home they had lived in until their mother died, which they purchased from their father for $1. After a few weeks before the murders, they sold the property back to their father for $5,000, equivalent to $144,000 in 2020. So he sold it to him for a dollar. Uh-huh. And then a few weeks before the murders, they sold it back to their dad. For 5000 Yeah, for $5,000. They're like, we don't want to know more, but... Uh, we ain't, but but we're we charging you more than a dollar. Yeah, like... The disrespect. Yeah, 5000 times more. <laughs> so they, they done bought this thing for like $20, and now they're going to sell it for $144,000. That's... I don't know. They That's so petty. I don't understand what happened. So, the night before the murders, John Vinicum Morse, the brother of Lizzie and Emma's deceased mother, so this is their uncle, uh, visited and stayed, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. Some writers have speculated that their conversation about, like, property transfer mm -hmm. may have aggravated an already tense situation. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, he just... Everybody's fighting with Andrew, the dad. Like, nobody's having it. And for several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill. A family friend later speculated that mutton left on the stove to use in meals over several days was the cause. But Abby, the stepmom, had feared poisoning. She was like, somebody done poisoned us. Um, as Andrew had not been a popular man. So they're like... Everybody we, mad about them pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not happy. And nobody likes Andrew. So she's like, <laughs> shoot, we probably were poisoned. Like, nobody Poison. likes you. They probably trying to kill us. So... You out here killing innocent birds. Killing these pigeons. They're like, he's killing the pigeons. He's cheap. They don't even have indoor bathrooms. We're sick of it. Poison them. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, she's like, that's the only explanation. So, John Morse, the uncle, had arrived in the evening of August 3rd and slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast the next morning, Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, Morse, the uncle, and the Borden's maid, Bridget, were downstairs eating. Andrew and the uncle went to the sitting room where they chatted for about an hour, and then Morse, the uncle, left around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen, just eight, the 1800s. Like, I'm going to go buy these oxen. 
and visit his niece in Fall River. And he planned to return to the house for lunch at noon. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime around 9 a.m. Usually, the cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores, but Abby went upstairs sometime between 9 and 10.30 to make the bed. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and face down on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits Dang. Yeah, to the back of her head, killing her. So the, this is the stepmom, right? Yeah. So like the 41 and 40 wax is not true. It's really like 17 and like 11 or something, which I'll tell what happened to Andrew and, you know, yeah. but so yeah, so they, at this point between nine and 10 30, she did, she gone already. So Andrew returned around 10 30 and when he went to put the key in the door, it didn't work so he knocked for someone to let him in maggie went to unlock the door but it jammed and then she cussed she would later testify that she heard lizzie laughing immediately after Uh -uh. this she did not she didn't see lizzie but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs so that's just creepy to me that is creepy you just grab it up get your get out of here it's like what are you doing stop like that would have just scared me so this was considered significant because Abby was already dead by this time and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was and she had replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Just lying. Yeah. So like, over. Lizzie stated that she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap. This was contradicted by the crime scene photos, which show Andrew wearing boots, by the way. She then informed Sullivan of a department store sale, and he said she could go. But Sullivan felt sick and went to take a nap in her bedroom. So I guess she told Maggie about the sale, and Mm -hmm. then asked her dad, and he said she could go, but Maggie was like, I don't feel good, I'm going to lay down. Sullivan, a.k.a. Maggie, testified that she was in her third floor room resting from cleaning windows when just before 11.10 a.m. she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick, father's dead, someone came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room and he was struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. Mm. One of his eyeballs, trigger warning, or just queasy warning, whatever, had been clearly split into two. Oh, my. Cleanly. Not clearly. Cleanly split into, ooh, suggesting that he had been asleep when he was attacked. His still bleeding wound suggested a very recent attack. Um, Dr. Bowen, the family's physician, arrived from his home across the street to determine both victims had died. Detectives estimated his time of death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. Hmm. Like, ooh, like he's still bleeding Yeah. when you get there. Ooh, ooh. It's like the killer just did it, and there was fresh, a, just fresh murder. 
fresh like than the meat locker just oof. yeah fresh so lizzie borden's but down to the bone <laughs> down to the bone like okay lizzie found him and he's still bleeding so somebody just re- like no no noises heard you didn't hear do, 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 no, no nobody run out the door or nothing like did they just evaporate like what's happening evaporate in thin air <laughs> yeah like that like that meme when it's like who gonna go clean this kitchen <laughs> and the kid with the deuces like that was that was the murder <laughs> so lizzie's initial answers to the police officer's questions were at times strange and contradictory initially she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house Two hours later, she told police she had heard nothing and entered the house, not realizing anything was wrong. So, I don't know if we ever get to this or not, but, like, Lizzie said that while the murders were being, you know, taking place, place, she was outside, I think out, like, in a shed, or she was picking pears from a tree. You know, there's just been different stuff, Mm -hmm. but she said she wasn't in the house. But then, somehow... You know, they heard the laughter and she said she wasn't upstairs. She was, you know, all it's like she's everywhere. So who knows? Um, so when asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking her to visit a sick friend. Um, oh, because she was supposed to be at the department store, too. So see, so she probably, mm-hmm. you know, was at the department store and came back, whatever. So anywho. Asked her where the stepmom was. She said she got a note to visit a sick friend. And she said she thought Abby had come home as well. And asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Maggie and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs. Their eyes level with the floor when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby laying face down on the floor. Mm-mm. Yeah. So she's like, oh, I thought she was gone girl okay <laughs> so most of the officers who interviewed borden were... i thought i was skinny <laughs> like sure everything is <laughs> yeah sure you thought she was gone okay so most of the officers who interviewed borden reported that they disliked her attitude some said she was too calm and poised despite her attitude and changing alibis nobody bothered to check her for blood stains. Police did search her room, but it was a cursory inspection. At the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search because Borden was not feeling well. They were very criticized for their lack of diligence when it came to searching Lizzie. In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. Mm. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break-in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that on the other bladed tools, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. Messy. (laughs) Just trying so hard. However, none of the tools were removed from the house. Sloppy Joes. (laughs) Sloppy Joe, just everywhere. Get a bun. (laughs) (laughs) This is a mess. Get you a napkin, because this is sloppy. However, none of the tools were removed from the house, 
Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew and Abby's stomach removed during autopsies performed in the boarding dining room were tested for poison. None was found. So the autopsies, they were like, well, we're just going to do them in here in the living room. That's fine. What? Why were y'all not removing the bodies? Like, people still got to live there. Cutting them up in the house. The 1800s. The 1800s. So, residents suspected Lizzie of purchasing hydrocyanic acid in a diluted form from the local drugstore. Because back then, you could just kill people with anything. Like, you just go to the drugstore Mm -hmm. and get a murder kit. Like, you you need poison. Remember the episode? (laughs) Yes. Just... Just, what do you need? What do you need to kill somebody? I'll just go to the local drugstore. <laughs> local murder store. You know, this can kill somebody, right? Yeah, I'm just using it for this. Okay. Like, just okay, trust. Cool. Yeah, my, oh, I'm going to kill my husband with it. Okay, perfect. That'll be two cents. <laughs> she defended that she inquired about the acid so she could clean her furs, despite her the furs. local medical examiner's testimony that it did not have antiseptic properties. So she didn't buy it. But they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, she didn't buy it. They thought she bought it, but she was like, no, I was just going to clean my furs. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. So Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell, decided to stay with them the night following the murders, while Morse, their uncle, spent the night in the attic guest room, contrary to later accounts that he slept in the murder site guest room. Like, why would anybody want to stay there? Why Mm -hmm. were people like, I already stayed in, in the room that... She was killed in like. So have no. we discovered where the uncle's at? We hadn't said nothing about the uncle yet, have we? No. Okay. Well, the uncle, the uncle was. He went to buy oxen. Oh, that's right. Yeah, in the town when all this happened. Just kidding. Yeah, I don't know how much proof we have of that. So, police were stationed around the house on the night of August fourth, during which an officer said he had seen Lizzie enter the cellar with Russell, her friend carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Borden returned alone. Though he was unable to see what she was doing, he stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. On August 5th, Morse left the house and was mobbed by hundreds of people. Police had to escort him back to the house. Like, it was just Mm -mm. madness. He was like, I gotta go back in. Get me out of here. Yeah. On August 6th, Police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sisters' clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. Next morning, Alice Russell, the friend, entered the kitchen to find Bering, Bering, Borden tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murders. Hmm. Yeah, so we just don't know. Lizzie came to the inquest hearing on August 8th. Her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute providing that an inquest must be held in private. So she wasn't even able to get her to get her lawyer. Uh, she had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves. Once again, the 1800s, morphine. they're like, here, here. That morphine. Mm-hmm. Well, I had them kidney stones. Mm-hmm. Which I ain't never done nothing. So, when I got that, I was like, whoo! <laughs> I'm up in the cloud, y'all! 
Like, this is great. So, from <laughs> and, and when I say stuff like that to people, they're just like, morphine's like not even. I'm like, well, I ain't never done nothing. So. Right. Like, I don't, I, I have not. <laughs> nothing against you. I've just never. Right. Like, I've never used recreational drugs that, <laughs> for enjoyment. <laughs> for enjoyment. So, this morphine has got you on another level. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, think about that. This is like 2000s morphine versus 1800s morphine. Mm-hmm. Back when people put cocaine and Coca-Cola morphine, like this, imagine how strong it was and prescribed regular doses, like just doped up on morphine. (laughs) And it said it is possible that her testimony was affected by this. Like, I'm sure it did. No one. It's so funny because I wrote in here, I'm sure it did. And I just said, I'm sure it did without looking at it. I'm like, (laughs) right, right. Like even then. Three months ago when I wrote this, I'm like, yes, I'm sure it did. No one would be able to testify under a drug that strong that affects you in such, like, think about you testifying. Crazy. It would have been a mess. Mm -mm. Her behavior was erratic, and she often refused to answer a question, even if the answer would be beneficial to her. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so you weren't there. I mean, I was in the bed, and mom was in the chair next to me. And I look over and I start laughing and she's like, what are you laughing at? And I was like, I'm like, really? Uh. <laughs> so I could only imagine. Yeah. She's just, just not answering I think questions. I thought it knocked me out <laughs> back in them days. Yeah. Just like Where's unconscious. Chelsea? Oh, she unconscious. She done took too much morphine. She took that morphine again. <laughs> oh God. And then, so wouldn't answer stuff. So honestly, I mean, I do think that she did it or had something to do with it. Yeah. So now she's on morphine and she's like, I can't say anything. I can't like, you know, it's probably yeah. like in her mind and she's on morphine. Like it's just a mess. So she often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home, then saying she was in the dining room doing some ironing and then saying she was coming from downstairs. Which, if she was, her stepmom was already dead, so, ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So, okay. <laughs> she also said she was removed, she also said she removed her father's boots and put slippers on Slip him. Slippers. But, like, once again. People stand with boots on. Yeah, like, he had the boots on when he was killed, so. These boots weren't made for walking. <laughs> <laughs> Just the, the, the death boots. Expired. Mm-mm. So the district attorney was apparently very aggressive and confrontational. And on August 11th, Borden was served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. The inquest testimony... The uncle? No, Lizzie. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was like really aggressive and confrontational with her. And she was served with a warrant. And they arrested her and put her in jail. Okay. I heard he, so I was like, wait. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a moment. (laughs) You're fine, you're fine. So the inquest testimony... The basis for the modern debate regarding her guilt or innocence, that's what the inquest testimony is, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June 1893. Newspaper articles of the time noted that Lizzie possessed a stolid, aka calm or relaxed demeanor. Stolid? I think it's stolid. Stolid. Either way. You know, I don't know. (laughs) And a bit, and bit her lips. Mm Mm-mm. I'm just read that over. Newspaper articles of the time noted that Borden possessed a stolid, aka calm or relaxed demeanor, and bit her lips, flushed, and bent towards Attorney Adams. 
It was also reported that the testimony provided in the inquest had caused a change of opinion among her friends who have heretofore strongly maintained her innocence. Hmm. I'm pretty sure this is a quote from a newspaper. Heretofore. No one says heretofore (laughs) anymore. Uh, The inquest received significant press attention nationally. Lord, the inquest received significant press attention nationwide, including an extensive three-page write-up in the Boston Globe. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Borden was indicted on December 2nd. So, now we're into the trial. Borden's trial took place in New Bedford starting on June 5th, 1893. Prosecuting attorneys were Jose M. Knowlton and future U.S. Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody. Defending were Andrew V. Jennings, Melvin O. Adams, and former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. Five days before the trial's commencement on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. Mm-mm. So it's like, we're trying to get through this one and now we got another one? This time, the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. Ooh. Yeah. The similarities, the similarities between the Manchester and Borden's murders were striking and noted by jurors. However, Jose Carrera de Mello, a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of Manchester's murder in 1894 and was determined not to have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. Ooh. So they caught that guy. A prominent point of discussion in the trial or press coverage of it was the hatchet head found in the basement, which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. One officer testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head, but another officer contradicted this. Though no bloody clothing was found at the scene, Russell testified that on August 8, 1892, she had witnessed Borden burn a dress in the kitchen stove. So Alice is the friend, or Russell is the friend. Okay. Yeah. So they saw her burning that dress in the kitchen stove, saying it had been ruined, you know, when she brushed against the wet, the wet paint. When she brushed against the wet paint. During the course of the trial, defense never attempted to challenge this statement. So... Lizzie was acquitted, which is probably common knowledge, but if you don't know, she was acquitted at the trial. So, although acquitted at trial, Lizzie remains the prime suspect in her father's and stepmother's murders. Writer Victoria Lincoln proposed in 1967 that Borden might have committed the murders while in a fugue state. Another prominent suggestion was that she was physically and sexually abused by her father, which drove her to kill him. Which would be horrible if that's true. Like, I hope that's not true. But there's little evidence to support this. But incest is not a topic that would have been discussed at the time. And the methods for collecting physical evidence would have been quite different in 1892, obviously. This belief was intimated in local papers at the time of the murders. And was revisited by scholar Marcia Carlisle in a 1992 essay. Mystery author Ed McBain, in his 1984 novel Lizzie, suggested that Lizzie committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian tryst with Sullivan, Maggie the maid. Mm -hmm. McBain elaborated on his speculation in a 1999 interview 
speculating that Abby had caught Lizzie and Maggie together, stepmom had caught them together, and had reacted with horror and disgust, and that Lizzie had killed Abby with the candlestick. When Andrew returned, she had confessed to him, but killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. McBain further speculates that Maggie disposed of the hatchet somewhere afterwards. In her later years, Lizzie was rumored again to be a lesbian, but there was no such speculation toward Maggie. Maggie ended up finding other employment after the murders and later married a man she met while she was working as a maid in Butte, Montana. So she like rolled out mm -hmm. and went west. Like She's this like, is Massachusetts. And she was like, Massachusetts to Montana, I go. <laughs> she was like, bye. So she done found she done found she a done man and she done chucked them deuces up. And rolled <laughs> out in a carriage. Rolled out. <laughs> Cross country, Oregon Trail. Just gone. Um so she died in Butte in 1948, where she allegedly, all this tea, and it's like, we don't even know if it's true. Apparently, she gave a deathbed confession to her sister, stating that she changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. So, another significant suspect is John Morse, Lizzie's maternal uncle, <laughs> who rarely met with the family after his sister died, but had slept in the house the night before the murders, according to law enforcement. Morse had provided an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. He was considered a suspect by police for, you know, some time. Others noted that a potential suspect in the crime could also be like Maggie. Maggie could be mm -hmm. one. Possibly in retaliation for being ordered to clean the windows on a hot day. Like, that's just gonna make you kill somebody. The day of the murders was unusually hot, and at the time... She was still recovering from the mystery illness that had struck the household. So, like, she just had enough. She's sick. She's tired. Mm -hmm. She's sick and tired. <laughs> and she's going to kill everybody because they're making her clean the windows. So, another suspect is someone named William Borden, who is suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son. Um, he is noted as a possible suspect by writer Arnold Brown, and he talks about this in his book, Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter. And he thinks that William had tried and failed to extort his father for money, like extort money from his dad. Mm -mm. So, and he just couldn't do it because he's so cheap. Right. <laughs> then he was like, well, I'll just kill him. But what good is that going to do if you don't get any money? Yeah. Okay. Um... However, author... Leonard Robello, Leonard, Leonard <laughs> Robello did extensive research on the William Borden in Brown's book and was able to prove he was not Andrew Borden's son. Although Emma had an alibi in Fairhaven, about 15 miles from Fall River, crime writer Frank Spearing proposed in his 1984 book that she might have secretly visited the residence to kill her parents before returning to Fairhaven to receive the telegram informing her of the murders. So, you know, this other guy's like, nope, not William. It's not his son. But Emma. Yeah. The other daughter could have done it. After the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large modern house in the Hill neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So that's the fancy fans. They're the fancies. Neighborhood in Fall River. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lisbeth A. Borden. At their new house, which Lisbeth dubbed Maplecroft, 
Why does everybody have to have a name? It's like Breeze Knoll. Breeze Knoll, Maplecroft. It's just so, I don't know. These mansions all have to have a name. Grey Gardens. <laughs> um, they had a staff that included live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went to Andrew and then, at his death, passed on to his daughters as part of his estate. So, I guess, like, you know, it keeps going back to, there was that bank and trust or whatever, that doofy whatever, mm-hmm. Durfee, doofy, doofigy, doofy, Um. So, she had money. So, I don't know. I don't get it. So, like, yeah, whatever she had went to Andrew, and so then all of it then went to the girls after they died. So, they got everything. Which I bet, I bet her siblings were mad because you know oh, that. Yeah. But that one sister got her house. You yeah, know, you just <laughs> you lose them. Just take your house and go on. Um, so a considerable settlement, however, was paid to settle claims by Abby's family. Mm. Okay, I forgot about that part. So despite the acquittal, Borden was ostracized by Fall River Society. Her name was again brought into the public eye when she was accused of shoplifting in 1897 in Providence, Rhode Island. So she's like, great. Unless she stole, which is like, you shouldn't have been thieving. Exactly. (laughs) Just thieving in the night. So in 1905, shortly after an argument over a party that Lisbeth had given for actress Nance O'Neill, Emma moved out of the house and never saw her sister again. So now her and Emma fell out over this actress and this party and they just never saw each other again. Could you imagine? No. It's just like, Oh, that's it. We're done. And I think they both, they <laughs> nice to nice to know you. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. And they still lived. I'm pretty sure the sister still lived in the area. Yeah. At least for a little bit, you know? So and she ended up moving, but for a little bit. So Lizzie was ill in her last year following the removal of her gallbladder. She died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927 in Fall River. Mm. Funeral details were not published and a few people attended her services. One, two, three. Yeah, just... Nine days later, Emma died from chronic nephritis, which is when your kidneys become inflamed and that can cause kidney failure, Mm -hmm. at the age of 76 in a nursing home in New Hampshire. Having moved to this location in 1923, both for health reasons and to avoid renewed publicity following the publication of another book about the murders. Mm. So, yeah. So, she stayed in Fall River for a while after the fight. Yeah. And then moved to New Hampshire. The sisters, neither of whom had ever married, were buried buried, buried, were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. At the time of her death, Borden was... Worth over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, equivalent to four million nine hundred ninety-eight thousand dollars in twenty twenty. She left thirty thousand, equivalent to six hundred thousand, to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, and five hundred ten thousand dollars in today's money in trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Her closest friend and a cousin each received six thousand dollars, one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in today's Gosh. money substantial sums at the time of this estate's distribution in 1927. So, I mean, yeah, that's substantial sums. So $600,000 mm-hmm. to the Animal Rescue League, $10,000. Wow. 
which is like ten thousand dollars for ten grand for my daddy's grave. Just keep that up. But six hundred thousand. <laughs> she was like, whatever, ten grand will do it. Um, <laughs> one hundred and twenty thousand dollars to those to the cousin and the friend, and then numerous friends and family members each received between twenty thousand and a hundred thousand dollars. Golly, a thousand and five thousand back then. Can please friends. If y'all got it like that, I'll take, I mean, I'd appreciate it so much. I would do that if I could. If I was rich, I would just start leaving people money in the I end. would too. That'd be so nice. You know, it starts to make you wonder, like, did she do it? You know? Did she, did she really? Like, if she killed, now she didn't say nothing about, about stepmama's grave. <laughs> I guess the stepmom. Yeah, like, what? <laughs> She was like, whatever, bye. Goodbye, Mrs. Borden. So, I don't know. Whether or not she did it, no one knows. For real, for real. But the Borden house is now a museum and operates as a bed and breakfast with 1890s styling. Since becoming a bed and breakfast, there have been some paranormal happenings. Oh, snap. Gets you a little bit of ghost stuff at the end. So, the former owners, the McGinn's, and present-day owners of... Okay. I can read. Can you? The former owners, the McGinn's, and the present-day owners of this stately yet plain home have had some experiences. (laughs) I was like, how are they the former and present-day? I was like, oh, never mind. The lights have... (laughs) The lights had a mind of their own turning on and off. The owners would be in a room, and in front of them, the wall switch would flick and turn on the lights. Mm-mm. The lights had a mind of their own, turning on and off. The owners would be in a room, and in front of them, the wall switch would flick and turn on the lights. Mm-mm. No. No, thank you. When no one was upstairs on the second floor and the third floor, the McGinn's and their staff would hear the doors open and close, followed by footsteps. In the guest bedroom, now called the John Morse room, an identification... (sighs) It's always at the end. In the guest bedroom, now called the John Morse room, an indentation of a body on the room's bed was discovered by a staff member, like someone had just laid on top of it. Mm -mm. One month after renovations and refurnishings, the home was complete. Nah. Y'all done move stuff around. Y'all keep wanting to refurnish and rebuild these old houses. Y'all can go ahead. But gonna, y'all are awakening the spirits. I'm going to be the SpongeBob in this and I, I'm going to head out. No. <laughs> <sighs> Shadow people have been seen, especially on the staircase, going down to the main hallway and walking into the other parts of the house. Owners of the home have seen shadow people move around different parts of the house. And sometimes staff and guests can feel someone brush against them on the stairs and in various parts of the home. Mm -mm. A shadow of a woman and an actual apparition that looks like Lizzie has been seen down in the basement by all the owners, the staff, and some guests as well. Like, what you doing down there? Somebody asked her, like, did you do it? (laughs) Did you do it? She's like, I killed him. (laughs) Disembodied voices have been heard as well. Owner Leanne Wilbur felt the cold touch of a finger run down her back. When she quickly turned around, no one was visible. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way to... That, I'm, I'm glad I typed it like that, and whoever wrote it like that. I, I mean, I quote my sources. No one was visible. 
Not that no one was there. No one was visible. (laughs) Today, the house is just as it was. Like I said, you know, the furnishings retain their rightful place. The decor has been painstakingly duplicated. And the original hardware and doors are still intact. Hmm. Pieces of evidence used in the trial, including the axe head, are preserved at the Fall River Historical Society. Other artifacts from the murder case are displayed in the house while Milmi... Ooh... While memorabilia from the era line shelves and mantel tops, a visitor is literally transported back to that morning when a perfect storm of events culminated in a double murder. And that, my dears, is the story. My dears. <laughs> my dears. That was a good one. Thank you. I Visible? liked it a lot. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yes. I mean, so much going on. Apparently, everybody hated Andrew. So like his heart. Yeah. Rest in peace. His little cheap sell pieces. <laughs> Ooh. Well no, he was all in one well, yeah. the, that piece of that eye. Ooh. Ooh. I'd be looking down from heaven like Dang. You gonna do my eyeball like that? <laughs> Can someone please get my eyeball in check, please, thanks. I mean you killed me, is that <laughs> why <laughs> why you gotta split my eyeball? That could have been donated to somebody. Yeah, it's it's crazy. There's a lot. Which they probably didn't do that back in the day, did they? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know when they started doing all that. Mm. Something to Google. So, that is that. If you have anything you want to tell us, questions, comments, concerns, stories. I know i got a couple people I'm waiting on to get the email for the stories so we can do them. Um, you can email us at amillionmurders at gmail.com. You can also visit our Instagram at amillionmurders. Mm-hmm. And check out the photos mm-hmm. of the victims or the people that are rude and killed people. Mm-hmm. And we also have a Facebook page yes. <laughs> that we're not doing much with, but will eventually. But we don't want y'all to forget we have our little Facebook group. Mm-hmm. And sorry about the... There have been some scammers or like some weird people that get on there and post stuff. So sorry about that. I'll have there. Yeah. And I've like... On our page? Uh-huh. It's been huh. like somebody added themselves to the group. Because anybody can... We made it where people can add yeah. people and... So everybody can see and... Yeah. But somebody posted this stuff. Those stupid links that are like just random stuff. Yeah. People are posting them. And so when I find them, I block them mm. as I find them. But sometimes it's been like a week. And it's just been sitting know. up there. I know. So we got to start checking it more because these people out here try to get all the fake people out or whatever. But yes, other than that, I think, I think that's everything. So thank you for listening. And we hope you come back for a, a million, million more. more.